Hello and welcome to this month's Ask an Attorney webinar. I am not the attorney. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine. This is our attorney, Tom Grieve, head of the largest criminal defense firm in the state of Wisconsin. It's quite an honor for me to be here with you, Tom. <laughs> well, it's an honor for me to be here with Concealed Carry Magazine editor. I mean, you guys actually win a lot of awards for those of you who don't know. Yeah, I try to, you know, downplay that a little bit. It's not just me. It's the whole team. Everybody's doing a great job. He carries a trophy but, around everywhere he goes. Yeah. Don't believe that for a second. So we've been doing this for about a year now, these yeah. Ask an Attorney webinars, and, and we always get to the end of the Ask an Attorney webinar, and there's still stacks and stacks of questions down there. So I think Max has pulled all of the questions that we have not asked in the past so that we can answer now. Ask, power through. Answer something. Something and, like that. Yeah, I, I see that on legal dramas. Ask and answered. So Ask and answered. Yeah. So we'll, we'll take a stab at it. All right. Let's jump right into it with Jack. When I'm traveling in my car and I have a concealed carry permit, does my gun need to be concealed or can I have it in an open area in my vehicle? I'll let you take this one. I know how you love this kind of stuff. Check your local listings, uscca.com forward slash laws, L-A-W-S at the end. Because frankly, that's where the answers are. Uh, one state that may, be that may be considered open carry, which may be prohibited. Another state may consider that some sort of illegal form of transportation, which may be prohibited. Another form, or another state may say that you are pointing a firearm at people, or you're doing this, you're doing that, you're displaying a weapon, that's reckless, that's endangerment, that's X, Y, Z, you just keep making it up because it might be true somewhere, probably New Jersey. So just keep all those <laughs> things in mind. But I mean, truthfully, it varies from place to place. You got to check your local listings. That's the answer. Yeah, we have uh, actually a group of people right now working on uh, uh, discussing and finding out all of the brandishing laws in all of the states. So we're going to add that to uscca.com slash laws and put that out there. But understand this too. If you have your gun in an open area and you are pulled over and Officer Friendly walks up and there's a gun laying out there, this has just elevated the stress level of this traffic stop probably by a factor of 10. Because if that gun is in an open area, it's in a place that we in law enforcement call the lunge area. If you can get to it by lunging, then it is a danger to us. So if your gun's laying out and I see it when I walk up on a traffic stop, we're gonna have a completely different conversation than if you've got it in your holster and it's tucked away and it's gone. So that's something to think about as well. When you're thinking about these laws, the practical aspects of what you're doing with your gun, also very important. Yeah, I'm a big believer in keeping things simple. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just as simple as that. The more complex you make the situation, the more opportunities for things to break, things to go wrong, and someone to end the day with more holes than they started or wearing orange. And either way, not saying that's fair, I'm just saying that's, that's the truth. Yeah, that's how it's going to be. Right. All right, we're looking for the next question. Good job, Max. Here we go. Max I'll let you on take it. this one, Lawrence. All right, Lawrence, civilians are not law enforcement, therefore, should any civilian attempt to detain or arrest a lawbreaker or simply eliminate the threat? Before we answer the question, there's yeah. something that, you know, are, Kevin, are law enforcement officers civilians? Yes, we are civilian law enforcement. And, and you made a very good point. Um, people who are um, under the auspices of the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, those people are not civilians. They are members of the military. But us as law enforcement officers, we are civilians. We are civilian law enforcement. There's a complete different element of power and authority and things like that between the military and the law enforcement. So let's get that settled first, that it's civilian law enforcement. It's not, you know, there's a difference between civilian and military. Now, should somebody help out 
in, uh, well, it's not even the question was not help out. It was try to arrest or detain somebody. Um, no, but don't just eliminate the threat either. That was the second part of the question. So the force that you are allowed to use to defend yourself or others must be objectively reasonable. So if you pull out your gun and the person puts their hands up and, and the threat stops, you can't shoot them, but you have therefore used your firearm to defend yourself in a situation like that. I am not an advocate of any private citizen trying to take somebody into custody. You have to get way too close to them to put handcuffs on or take them into custody or whatever. You can try to hold someone at gunpoint if they were doing something that would rise to the level of the use of deadly force. You pull out your gun, you tell them stop, stay right there while the police come. Okay, that's the end of your involvement in this situation. Bad guy turns and runs away, let him go. That's what you wanted, the bad guy to go away. Right, yeah, I mean, anytime you're gonna be possibly using deadly force, which can, depending upon your laws, depending upon your particular law enforcement officer, your prosecutor, your judge, your jury, even producing and pointing a firearm could be considered deadly force. Even if you're not intending it that way, that's great. But that may not be how the prosecutor or the jury sees it. So you gotta be really careful about doing things like that. You know, I, the way I think about it is really simple, Lawrence. If you are out there trying to detain lawbreakers, you see somebody shoplift and, and you're gonna tackle them to the ground or whatever else. Um, I get it. Nobody likes seeing people break the law, destroy property, do whatever it is. Uh, but unless you're protecting somebody from themselves being harmed in turn, you are actively trying to become my client. I mean, that just is what it is. You are volunteering because when that person, you think that person's gonna say, oh yeah, that, that person tackled me, they used the least minimal force necessary. Uh, no, they're gonna be saying everything possible to go after you, and it's depending upon whatever else is going on, you could be looking at false imprisonment charges, which by the way, in many states is a felony. And I get it again, I'm not trying to put you on trial, I'm not trying to attack you, I'm just saying this is the way it is out there. Um, and I've, I've had very good people with no records as clients because they've tried to replace the law enforcement officer with themselves uh, and they thought they were upholding the law. And the law is a tricky thing. And even if they were doing their earnest, honest to goodness, best job of trying to do that, they can run afoul of things. And law enforcement officers, they're trained on what to do and what not to do. Mm -hmm. You probably aren't. And I'm not attacking you by saying that, it just is the way it is. So I would say, I'm not saying it's someone else's problem, but the way I would engage is by calling 911, being a good witness is the best job you, could, you should probably be thinking about doing. Yeah, and remember, your concealed carry permit and your concealed firearm does not give you any extra power or authority. It just gives you the opportunity to defend yourself or another person if you so choose, typically a loved one, but you could defend a stranger if you wanted to, but that opens up an entire different can of worms. So um, think very seriously before you act because the consequences stay with you long after the action. So please think very seriously before you take that action. So if Lord forbid a shooting occurs, does one have to submit to a house search for additional weaponry? Um, I'll hand this off to Tom immediately, but uh, a law enforcement officer responding to a gun call or a shooting situation what we're going to be looking for is evidence of that shooting, of what's going on right there. So clearly, the guns that were used in the shooting, we are going to want to tag and take as evidence. But I don't think I get to search the rest of their house. 
Before I try to jump into this one, I'm just going to say hi to my wife, Jen. We'll be home late tonight because there's a lot we can unpack here. Um, <laughs> look, it's true. So let me just give you a couple real-life scenarios. Um, I've had people get arrested for whatever reason, and while they're in jail, someone slaps a restraining order against them, which may prohibit them from possessing firearms. Subsequently, their house gets searched while fulfilling that order, which is arguable, but I've had people had their firearms taken uh, from their home while they're, while they're still in custody. I once had a client who was told that he can either consent to this happening or the police will blow torch off the hinges of his safe and whatever damage happens to his weapons, hey man, try suing us. And by the way, who do you think makes the rules on how you sue the government? The government, good luck, all right? Um, there, there are situations where, okay, you're, you're in custody, there could be bail, there could be all sorts of different things. What Kevin said is 100% true, which is they are searching for evidence. And if there's probable cause, or depending upon your state, whatever, whatever evidentiary tests may exist to seize evidence related to a possible crime, then law enforcement may be able to do that. There's plain sight tests, there's warrants, there's all sorts of different things to take into account. Uh, but there could be other issues that come into this as well. So I'm not saying you have to consent to anything. At the end of the day, you can respectfully raise your rights, but that doesn't mean that law enforcement won't eventually get to all those things. Those are two very different questions. Yeah, we have to have a warrant before we can go just searching willy-nilly. And even with a warrant, the warrant has to be very specifically defined. So we're not, um, we're not coming in there just, you know, going to go tear the whole place apart. So, all right, I'm supposed to say hello to Jack, Mike, Terrence, and John. They just keep adding more names to the list out there. And just a reminder for everybody out there, comment on your questions down below this video or off to the side of the video if you're watching on YouTube. Um, we are reading what's going on. Max is back there busily typing, doing all sorts of great and crazy things for us on camera here. But we are getting your messages, so continue to bring us the comments. That's the only way we can answer what you're asking. So take the next one there, Tom. If you're in a situation where you walk into, let's say, a convenience store and see someone with a firearm threatening someone, should you engage to help or wait only if threat escalates to shot to fire a shot. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. Who's pointing the gun at whom? Maybe you just walked in on the tail end of the robbery and it's a good guy pointing a gun at someone who is just wielding a knife. So um, you need to know exactly what's going on before you pull out your gun and certainly before you start throwing bullets around the room and know who you're pointing the gun at. What if this guy is an off-duty cop holding somebody that he, you know, that, that was trying to rob the store or for some other reason was trying to take into custody? Um, there, there's lots going on. In this scenario, we don't have enough information to tell you what to do. That's up to you. The totality of the circumstances, what's really going on? As I can imagine a millennial member of my staff saying, you're going to be super responsible for what you do <laughs> if you pull out that firearm, okay? Not only responsible, super responsible, all right? Because it's absolutely true. I mean, exactly what Kevin said. You got to make sure that you got all the players right and keep in mind, okay, you see those two people. Let's say you get it right. Let's say the person out with the firearm, that's the bad guy. Okay, do you see his friend, the getaway driver, who's behind you? Do you see his buddy, the spotter, who's down an aisle? I'm not trying to pile on here. I'm just saying, again, this is real life. And odds are, Psychologically speaking, when you see that firearm, you're going to anchor on that, and you could get tunnel vision and so forth. Even though it's not pointed at you, uh, you are opening yourself up, your loved ones, 
your job, your business, your house, your mortgage, everything, to you getting everything precisely right. And I'm not saying don't act. I'm just saying you need to have all these things into consideration before you choose to act. Because when you jump into that shark tank, mm -hmm. can you explain the shark tank analogy for those who may not have heard it? Yeah, why, why would you jump into a tank filled with sharks? Would you do it for a wallet or a set of car keys or something like that? I don't think so. You're risking your life. You're gonna jump in there for someone you want to save, for some reason that is more important than a wallet or you know a special trinket that grandma gave you or whatever. What's gonna make you want to jump into a shark tank? Because getting involved in a shooting is just like jumping into a shark tank. And one most important thing to think about, just because you don't know the reason for something doesn't mean there isn't one. So you might not know what's happening in its totality while this is going on. So you need to slow down and think clearly because you're responsible for everything you do. I don't think anyone here is gonna tell you you need to do this or you need to do that. You've gotta make your own decisions for yourself because at the end of the day, I'm not gonna be the one living out whatever consequences may follow. Good, bad, because you intervened or because you didn't intervene. Those are the consequences, like it or not, you're gonna to have to face, which means you need to own the decisions. We're just trying to get you thinking about all the different things that go into that, because it's a lot more complex than a lot of people give it credit for. All right, let's move on to the next one here. What should you do if there is another concealed carry person in the room, decided to draw his gun or start shooting? Again, Good. figure out right. what's going on before you take action. What you should do, look for cover. Right. Find a place to hide. Because now there's two people shooting in the room. That's twice as many bullets flying around. Right. And keep in mind, if you pull out your gun, are they going to think that you're a good guy or a bad guy? Mm -hmm. I mean, the question presupposes that you know the other one, the other person is a good guy. He's another mm -hmm. concealed carrier, let's say, right? Yeah. Is he part of the robbery crew? Just because he was concealed carrying and didn't initially act, I hate to say it, but it doesn't mean that they're one of the good guys. It could be another bad guy. We, yeah. we, we don't know. And... Candidly, neither do you, and that gets back to the shark tank. So, again, nobody's here is saying never act, never jump into it. We're just saying that these are your decisions and it's your life. You're going to be owning it, so think about it first. Yeah, and this is self-defense. Think about what you're doing to protect yourself rather than anybody else in this situation. You may want to protect a loved one or a family member, something like that, but total strangers over there, I'm sorry, maybe it sounds a little heartless, but... I gotta protect myself first so I can go home to my family. So. Right, right. These are all decisions you have. Timothy, in general, is, is it legal to carry more than one gun? Tim, in general, check your local listings. Um, and I'm not trying to beat you up on that, but that's the answer. In general, though, the question asks in general. Uh, in general, I would say yeah. Yeah, I, I, we wrote a story or an edition of Concealed Carry Magazine about backup guns. And a couple different people kind of got on us about their particular state. Your concealed carry permit is for your gun, that right. specific gun. And if you want to carry two guns, you have to have two permits or both guns registered on that permit or, or something of that nature. So this becomes very complicated. So uscca.com slash laws, we have that information there. And if we don't, send us a message and we will get it and put it there. Great question, Timothy. All right, Terrence. Hey, I just said hello to Terrence. Terrence, are you watching? Just send a note to Max and let him know that we're answering your question now. Are different laws covering firearms versus non or less lethal options? I.e., you don't necessarily need to be concerned carrying pepper spray in a gun-free zone. Well, no, pepper spray is not 
a gun, so you can carry that in a gun-free zone. But you do need to check your local laws and figure out what you are allowed to carry for weaponry, whether it's listed on your concealed carry permit or not. I found out that the state of Wisconsin allows me to carry a handgun or an electronic device or a billy club under my concealed carry permit. So I recently purchased myself a 12-inch leather sap from Andy's Leather, and I'm ready to throw that in my pocket. <laughs> You're ready to throw down yeah. now. Oh, yeah. I'm going totally old school with this thing now <laughs> because I know it's legal. So, uh, But, yeah, you have to figure out what your laws are and, and what you are allowed to carry under the auspices of your permit. So that first... Figure out you know where you are and what's legal where you are. And keep in mind that sometimes there's there's small differences in the law that you know maybe your maybe your pepper spray is legal to a particular concentration, but beyond that it isn't. And maybe that it works this way in this state and in the, the other state it doesn't. So you gotta you gotta be careful, take your time, educate about educate yourself about this because small differences it may mean nothing to you if you're shopping online or if you're shopping at your local store. And hopefully the local store owners are only stocking things that are legal because if it's probably legal for you to possess, it's yeah. probably illegal for them to sell. But I've seen situations where stores are selling things that are illegal and they didn't even know it all the time. So you got to be careful and, and ultimately keep in mind that I don't think it's really a defense of saying, well, I bought it at the store, so I figured it was legal. Yeah, you're responsible for what you're carrying. And Terrence says he's still watching on YouTube, so thanks thanks for hanging around, Terrence. So next one up, I'll give you this one. Okay, is it a, is it a good practice to pay for range time, ammunition, etc., with a credit card to have a record of the transaction or could it be held against you in court? Well, for starters, everything could be held against you in court. The question is what happens next, right? We live in America, you can be sued at any time for any reason, for anything. One of you, please don't do this, but one of you could sue us because you hate people who wear blue ties and by golly, we've offended you or hurt your feelings and you're on your way to your safe space, right? We'd have to respond to that lawsuit, wouldn't we? We would and it would be fun. You don't wanna do it, but, but again, it's case in point of sure, something could be tried to be used against you, it could be anything. But again, this goes back to, well, what were you practicing? Were you practicing good things? Were you practicing bad things? I think to the heart of your question, what you're, what you're really asking is, should you be using a credit card? What kind of documentation uh, should you be sustaining? I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea at all to sustain that you have documentation. I think it's, at the end of the day, you made a good shoot or you made a bad shoot. You hit right. your target or you missed your target. I think that's going to be kind of self-evident. Uh, as a defense attorney, I'm a little less concerned about, well, look how accurately you can shoot. Well, we know how accurately you can shoot. You hit your target or you missed your target, right? I'm a little bit more concerned about the decision-making process that informs and goes into upstream of the shooting, when can you shoot? And I think that that's where the USCCA does an amazing job of having the training, the videos, the education to go out there to build and craft the narrative of, you only are shooting to stop the threat. It's a last resort option, right? Those are the things, as well as, of course, check and, and obey and respect your local laws, uscca.com forward slash laws. Um, that's really going to be going to what were you thinking, what did you know at that particular moment? And remember, we can provide you all of the best information in the world, and we do, when it comes to things like deadly force decision making and other elements, but you have to follow those rules as we train them to you. So remember, if we tell you that your, your force must be objectively reasonable and that you may only shoot until the threat stops and then you must stop shooting, you need to do those things as well. Not just 
read about them and catalog your training and then go do something totally different. You need to follow the instructions that we're giving you because we're giving you the right information. Case so. in point, you, if you shoot someone and then tell the officers, well, I feared for my life, that is not a get out of jail free card at all. Mm -hmm. And if you think that's the way it works, I hope you never get in trouble because if you do, you're gonna find out very quickly and with extreme prejudice that that is not the way it works. You gotta educate yourself and that's what hopefully you're all doing by being here with us today. So what happens if you act in self-defense in a public place and hurt an innocent bystander? Well, there's gonna be an investigation and how that goes is probably gonna be handled by guys like Tom. Hi, <laughs> I'm Tom. I look into these investigations. Uh, and guys like Kevin, law enforcement officers, are of course going to be making their own investigations as well. One of the big things to keep in mind is many states have what's called the transferred intent law. And keep in mind there's both a criminal aspect to this, in other words, can you go to jail or prison, as well as is there a civil, in other words, is someone going to sue you, probably the person you hit, who's, who's suing who? That's kind of a separate basket of questions, and since we're not going to be here all day, let's just focus on the criminal for a moment, all right? So on the criminal end, if you are acting lawfully in self-defense, then you may be able to use the fact that you are acting lawfully in self-defense as a shield against criminal liability if, for example, the state tries to charge you because you injured so-and-so. But it doesn't mean that it's a shield against reckless conduct and all sorts of other things. What does that mean? <laughs> Ultimately, it's up to your jury. It's up to your legislatures who write the laws as well. So that's where, sure, judicial marksmanship, of course we want that, all right? But at the end of the day, um, certain states do have some liability protections built in for both civil and criminal. Yeah, and, and some of the things that, that they taught us at the police academy is understand two things are gonna be looked at. The totality of the circumstance, what's happening while you're there, and then police officers are authorized to act with what we call the greater danger theory. If our failure to act would pose a greater danger to the public than our actions, then of course we can engage with gunfire if we don't have perfect target isolation or perfect target acquisition or something like that. We're allowed to take that action because if somebody is standing up and, and firing a rifle into a large crowd of people and we shoot at him and the bullet passes through his neck and hits someone in the back, okay, we have then stopped this threat but we injured somebody else in, our, in the course of our actions doing that. But in stopping the threat and injuring that other innocent person, we maybe saved 20 or 30 other lives. All of this stuff will be discussed and investigated and hashed out in front of the jury and with attorneys. So think about that before you act. Expensive attorneys, let me throw that in there. Uh, Thomas asks, how often should we practice at the gun range? Pistol practice, how many rounds? My simple short answer is as often as you need to so that you can competently and confidently draw and fire your weapon on target. Yes, and, and my advice with this would be more than you are practicing now. And that's, that's what I would like to see everyone do. Um, we have put out a couple of different uh, stories in Concealed Carry Magazine and posts on the blog um, at the USCCA website about how to train effectively with one box of ammunition or something like that. But Tom is absolutely right. Focus on your marksmanship skills first and then make sure that you can draw, deploy your weapon, and get your round on target. And then know your limitations. If somebody is 20 yards away and you can only shoot accurately to 15 yards, you don't want to be firing that shot. Yeah, that's a big one. And look, we understand that you can't practice drawing at many ranges. We get it. So that's a perfect opportunity to, after, let me repeat this twice, ensure that your firearm is not loaded. 
-hmm. ensure that your firearm's not loaded, and still only pointing it in a safe direction, practice drawing at home under safe controlled conditions. Again, not loaded, safe direction, always, both of them, always, all right? And you can just keep practicing your draw, practicing your draw from your concealed, from your actual holster, your, your real firearm. If it's concealed, make, don't have your shirt pulled out then. You wanna see how this is actually gonna go. So just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. There's, and if you wanna see what it's like to draw from, from a, uh, let's say from your car or something like that, you can just do this while you're watching TV, all right? Again, only safe, unloaded, always safe direction. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things we tell people is no ammo in the room where you're doing yeah. dry fire. That that makes triple sure that you're you're taking your ammunition, you're walking it out of that room, and you're not going to uh, send a negligent round through the wall and hit your wife in the kitchen while she's cooking or something like I've that. I've had so. any number of cases where um, people shot a firearm that they insisted in their home was unloaded. All right. So you know we joke about it. I'm sure you've all read about it and seen it. I've seen it too as a criminal defense attorney, and the prosecutors take this stuff very, very seriously, very seriously. Yes, absolutely. So after a self-defense situation, Wall, is that Wally or Wall, W-A-L-I? Yeah, there we go. Um, after a self-defense situation, do I holster my firearm or put it on the ground or some other place when the police are on their way? Well, you see, and I'm a word guy and Tom is too, are the police on their way or are they on the scene? So I'm going to talk from the situation of before the police get there. After a shooting, move to a position of tactical advantage. Get yourself to some cover. Move yourself to a different location so that you can protect yourself and your loved ones. And maintain distance from your adversary if that person is on the ground. And keep them covered. Keep your gun out in case they become a threat again. And then when the police arrive on scene, take it away, Tom. Well, for starters, you're always complying with their with, with whatever they're ordering for you to do, all right? This is not your time to start yelling about how you know your rights. And I'm, I'm joking about it, but I'm being deadly serious as well. And deadly is the correct word here because that's how you're going to end up if you don't follow their commands and they think that you're armed, all right? So always, always, always follow their directions. For my way of thinking, it's easier and there's less, there's less hassle and there's less chances for something bad to happen if it's not holster, if it's not on you, if it's on the ground, and that way you can safely and slowly move away from it. Uh, I understand that some trainers train things differently. I don't have a major objection with that. Frankly, to my way of thinking, it's gonna come down more so to the training and the comfort of law enforcement mm -hmm. than it will for you if you're following everything that they're telling you to do. But I think that you get to remove some of the, the complexity and some of the room for error if that firearm is not on you and holstered. Yeah, and, and again, follow all instructions slowly. And, and if you have a question, say to the police officer, tell me what you want me to do. And remember, everybody at the scene is going to be afraid. Whether they say they are or not, everybody at the scene of a shooting does not want to get shot. So follow those instructions. Yeah, and so. for God's sake, don't make any, don't, don't reach in your pocket and, and don't make any quick movements. Yep. Daniel asks, are there any other benefits to being LEOSA certified, that's the Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act certified, rather than simply possessing a state concealed carry weapon license? Um, yes, your LEOSA certification allows you to carry your firearm across state lines. So if you have the opportunity to be certified through the LEOSA program, I would get back with your agency and get that certification. Um, there are some different rules for the LEOSA certification. You have to be certified to the type of firearm you will be carrying. So 
auto-loading pistol or revolver. That will be noted on your certification, on your, your uh, retired police officer ID card, things like that. So um, look into LEOSA certification because it is good nationwide. Um, that doesn't mean that it's an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card or anything like that. Police officers will still look at your ID and probably call your agency and double-check or something like that if you are in one of the states, maybe New Jersey, where they don't like to see people carrying guns. Hypothetically. Yeah, hypothetically. So not, not just picking on New Jersey. There's also Massachusetts. So um, <laughs> th those are the sorts of things. But, yeah, so the LEOSA certification um, crosses state lines. That, that's the benefit of having it. Great. Good. All right. John asks, I have an AR pistol and I would like to, con uh, to carry concealed in my SUV. This is legal for Indiana, but my question is, how do I articulate to an LEO, law enforcement officer, during a stop that, one, I have this weapon, and two, that it is not an NFA rifle, National Firearms Act? I'm finding that many LEOs are unaware that AR and AK pistols are legal pistol. Well, let's just stop and define some, some terms for people who may not be familiar. If you have a weapon, if you have a, a rifle that is either less than 26 inches of overall length from the maximum extended position, exception for you folks in Michigan, uh, or it is less than a 16-inch barrel length, then it is no longer a rifle. Well, short of. It's just a short-barreled rifle, which means it's now subject to additional federal regulation, and it is illegal for you to own it unless you have jumped through special permitting hoops, basically. That, that's condensing a lot of problems yeah. to one. So that's the gist to it, all right? Um, if, so, however, if the AR or the AK uh, is designed to be fired from, uh, not from the shoulder, but if it's, it's designed to be fired from, you know, basically the, you know, the hand, yeah. basically, a handheld rather than a shoulder-fired device, then it does not necessarily need to comply with the length for either the overall length or the, or the barrel length. Um, it is now going to be a pistol. Now, keep in mind, if you put a vertical foregrip on there, it now turns into an AOW and any other weapon, and there's things that you can do that will really muck that up, all right? And there's questions about braces and SIG braces and what's the ATF calling this and that. And people, if you don't know anything about this, you're stepping into a swamp if you try to follow this, right? So let's, let's steer this back to the question. Um, how are you supposed to deal with this? It may not be a bad idea um, to have, uh, number one, if you're running and if you're carrying a, an AR pistol or an AK pistol, which is not something I see a lot of. Let me be very clear. I fully support you doing this, um, but I'm not surprised you're running into issues. It's kind of like how people who were into NFA weapons, which the National Firearms Act, NFA, and really all firearms are basically subject to the NFA. What we're really talking about is it not a type one weapon, we're talking about a type two weapon. That's the type, that's the section within the NFA that deals with uh, short barrel rifles, um, machine guns, full automatics, suppressors, silencers, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm not surprised. If you go back 10 years or so, people uh, were routinely, I don't want to say getting hassled, but they were being checked out routinely by law enforcement because they said, well, what's the silencer? Is this thing illegal? What's going on here? You got to remember most law enforcement officers, and I'm not attacking them or impugning them, but they're not gun people. 
All right. Now you see a SWAT rocker or badge or something like that. That's probably a gunman or woman. All right. They did that to join and to get the free ammo or something mm -hmm. like that. But for the most part, my experience, most officers uh, are—they're not gun people. They're not checking out all this most recent stuff. Um, it's just part of the reality. It's part of the pie here that that we're all stuck with. Sometimes for better, often for worse. That I'm not surprised you're gonna have to keep educating them. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that this is the cost of going through that. Having some laws that might be printed out in your local state that can easily, like statutes, that you can easily point out that this is not a pistol and here's what these relevant laws are and so forth. I wouldn't be surprised if they take the weapon, if you're in the back of the squad car, if they're calling, <clears throat> pardon, they're calling their sergeant, lieutenant, they're calling the on-duty prosecutor on the cell phone to try to figure out what the heck's going on here. All these sorts of things used to be much more routine for people who carried NFA weapons. Much less so, at least right now in 2019 here in Wisconsin, as more and more folks have kind of mainstreamed this, we've mm -hmm. seen less and less issues. But I don't, have, I, don't have a, I don't have a silver bullet for you other than be respectful, be polite, follow the commands. I'm not saying it's fair to you, but I'm saying here's what it is. Um, and, and good for you for carrying it, but here's what it is, have those laws handy. Yeah, and remember, law enforcement officers don't have every single law memorized. This cop might understand that if a barrel is shorter than 16 inches, we have a short-barreled rifle and there needs to be some NFA paperwork with this gun. But what you're doing in this situation is now you have become the subject of an investigation. The cop needs to figure out if what you're doing is legal or illegal. And he doesn't know immediately or she doesn't know immediately, so they have to figure it out. So they're going to investigate try to figure out what that is. If you happen to be carrying along with you in your case, because you said you're carrying this, this uh, pistol concealed, maybe the uh, ATF letter about the SIG brace or the CAC brace or whatever brace that you have put on there, um, or just the fact that there's no shoulder stock at all, so yes, it is indeed a pistol and you can carry it as such. Yep, but understand you're gonna have to be explaining this information and you might have to explain it to every cop you run into. And they, it is their duty to investigate to make sure you're not breaking the law. Right, and you may get detained. The way that the laws are written in many states is that there's effectively a presumption. I, hate to say, I don't want to say there's a presumption that you're guilty, but in essence, these items, they start, guilt, they start as illegal unless they fit an exception. So it's not that you start guilty. It's just that for the investigation purposes, oftentimes the state laws classify these as anything under this particular barrel length or overall length is illegal. Unless it fits one of these obscure exceptions, which the officers may not have any experience with whatsoever. So it is what it is. I'm sorry. I wish I had a better answer for you than that. Just be polite, be respectful, and understand that there's going to be a process involved. And 10 years from now, hopefully there won't be. Yeah, maybe everyone will know. So right. if a person uses pepper spray in self-defense, can you be legally liable for that? Well, I, I don't get it. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, yeah, you still, you're using force. You have to use objectively reasonable force. Did you use this to defend yourself and were you legally allowed to do that? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can be liable for I, anything you do, even so, for something you don't do. Yeah, <laughs> it was, that was an easy one. Sorry, sorry I missed America. it. America. I'll, I'll take the next one down because I messed up that first one. Can you shoot a person <laughs> on your property at night attempting to break into your home and he has a weapon? Well, I'm going to say a, a, you know, yes, maybe, it, yeah. Definitely There's maybe. There's so much going on with this question right here. Um, you know, have you properly identified who this person is? Do you understand that this is a true imminent deadly threat? 
Do you live in a state where you can defend yourself with gunfire just for breaking in? Do you have, is the castle doctrine in play with what you're doing there? And is this person's actions and are your locations as this is happening, does that allow you for protection under the castle doctrine? This is, this right. is lawyer stuff. That, and you know, the last part of what Kevin touched on is really what I just want to drill into here, which is the fact that I run into folks all the time when I'm talking to people, and we're talking about the Castle Doctrine, and people just have this complete misunderstanding. And I'm not, I'm not being judgmental or critical. It's just, people, we've got to solve this. We've got to talk about it, all right? Just because your state, whether it's Wisconsin or someplace else, has Castle Doctrine doesn't mean that you can just waste people who are prowling around the window or even if they're inside. Generally, by and large, what Castle Doctrine will do is it creates a presumption under the law that you can be in uh, a state of, of fear for imminent death or great bodily harm. In other words, it creates a presumption that at that point you can take deadly force, assuming certain triggering criteria is met. So example, here in Wisconsin, somebody has to have either broken into or be in the process of breaking into your home are two such examples. So if somebody's just prowling around outside in your lawn, that is not castle doctrine at all. Now maybe if they're shooting at you or if you think they're about to shoot at you or if they're pointing a gun and saying they're going to shoot you, that could be a self-defense case. But still I don't think but it's still not castle doctrine. Exactly. And the last thing I just want to touch on there is I said it creates a presumption. And anytime you hear that P word in the law, presumption, it's followed by an imaginary R word that I assure you is all too real, rebuttable. What I mean by that is that if the prosecutor wants to introduce evidence to show why Castle Doctrine ought not or does not apply, they might and they will, and Castle Doctrine may not apply, and then you may have some big problems if you didn't watch what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. So, next one up, um, the, uh, I'm not going to read this word for word. I'm going to fix the grammar because it's just rubbing me the wrong way. If someone falsely imprisons me for whatever reason at gunpoint and they have nothing to do with the issue, and he or she doesn't have a valid reason, can I use deadly force since I am in fear for my life? So it sounds to me like someone is pointing a gun at you and you don't know why. Right. That, that is, is that what you got from this? That's what I got from this. <laughs> so yes, you can use deadly force then to protect yourself because you are an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. Someone is pointing a gun at you. And and that point you say falsely imprisoning me they're saying, don't move or I will shoot you, and you don't know why. This becomes one of those, what's really going on here? I, there's no name attached to this question, but uh, we'll, we'll just say Jim. Jim, what's really going on here? What has happened that would make you ask this question? Yeah, I mean, questions usually don't come out of thin air. Sometimes they do, and sometimes those are really fun, and maybe Jim's question, <laughs> not real name, uh, is, is such a question. Um, the context is really going to be everything here, right? Uh, they produced a gun. If they're pointing a gun in your face, if you're walking down the street and some guy points a gun in your face and says, I'm going to kill you, then okay, right? Um, if we want to legally draw a conclusion that you're falsely imprisoned, fine, so be it. I'm way less anchored on are you falsely imprisoned. I'm way more focused on, in fact, I'm, I don't really care the fact you're falsely imprisoned, to be perfectly honest. I care about the fact that somebody's threatening you with deadly force. That's what I care about because that's what the law probably cares about wherever you are. All right, so Jafer, you get Jafers. Oh, All right, no, that we just did Jafers. So that was that was it was not Jim, it was Jafer. Jafer, false imprisonment. So Bulldog is for you. Tom, uh oh, he called me out by name. If the police want to search your house for firearms, absent emergent circumstances, I think it's exigent. Probably. 
Uh, we'll, we'll read in exigent uh, circumstances. Should you tell them to get a search warrant? So they don't have exigent circumstances. And the reason why uh, he's asking that question for that is the fact that uh, if police have exigent circumstances, that is one of the preconditions beyond consent and so forth, oftentimes, not every time, uh, but generally, in order to do an immediate search rather than wait to get a warrant or something like that. So police want to search your home for firearms and they don't have exigent circumstances, should you tell them to get a warrant? It's your call. I mean, if you let them in, uh, they're probably asking for your consent. And if you consent... We like consent. Cops love <laughs> consent, all right? And don't forget, they love another thing too. It's called plain view. Yep. In other words, okay, they're walking through your house for firearms. You gave them permission to search, which by the way, could mean anything. They could be going through your cereal boxes. They could I mean, that could be everything. I mean, hey, can we search your home? Jeepers. So the reason why I say plain view is, okay, they're looking for firearms. Uh, they find your, uh, your, your mementos from Colorado, let's say, <laughs> uh, uh, where it's legal to use marijuana or something like that. And all of a sudden, you could be looking at some problems. So, look, it's not, to my way of thinking, it's not anti-law enforcement just to use your rights that they've sworn to uphold and protect under the Constitution. Just say it politely, respectfully to decline. Yeah, and, and we need a warrant. And then, as we said before, uh, you know, the warrant has to be very closely defined of what we're looking for and where we're going to be looking for it. So, um, as a law enforcement officer who just made a joke with Tom, I like consent. Yeah, if, if you have the opportunity to not consent to a search, and the law enforcement officer will know whether or not he can legally search, and don't consent to the search. Do not let someone in your house and, hi, can I come search your house? That's like Christmas. That's, <laughs> you know, don't, don't do that. So, Don't do uh, that. Yeah. Um, this and talking about Colorado, I'll, I'll take this one here because this one is is kind of twisted, but we'll 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 uh, we like um, ferret it out. My Colorado permit, John is asking this question, so here we go, John. My Colorado permit is no longer valid, and I am now an Oklahoma resident and have applied for my Oklahoma permit. I am no longer carrying because I am not licensed for possibly up to ninety days until I'm approved. Apparently, in Oklahoma. I don't think Utah non-resident will allow me to carry. Do you think I'm correct? Have you gone to our reciprocity map, John? That's the first question I'm going to ask. And it will tell you if a non-resident permit is valid in Oklahoma. Super easy. I don't know that answer, but uscca.com forward slash laws will tell you that answer. I don't know either, but I have seen people criminally charged for similar circumstances where they move from one state to another state and the other state doesn't recognize their out-of-state permit, so or the non-resident permit. So be careful. All righty. Uh, you read this one earlier. Keeping your mouth shut. I'll let you take it. Okay. All right. So keeping my mouth shut. Matt from Texas asks: Keeping my mouth shut would be very difficult when the real culprit is telling/slash yelling the law enforcement. Uh, Matt's grammar's a bit off. That's okay. Uh, the law enforcement that I'm the aggressor. All right. So basically, he's at the scene and we're listening to the bad guy, the actual bad guy, the aggressor, the attacker, is yelling about how they're the victim, and you, you're the person who's actually okay, and should I keep my mouth shut or should I get into a shouting match? I think this is one of those situations where reasonable minds can give different answers. What I'm not gonna be doing is getting into a shouting match with the bad guy, because that's not gonna do anything. That's a, that's a bad look, let's say that, all right? But I think, if you want to just say, look, I was attacked, uh, 
This guy attacked me. Here's the evidence. That screwdriver he's got poking out of his back pocket, that box cutter he's got coming out of his boots, that was the weapon he used. Pointing that out, entirely appropriate, particularly if there's evidence that might be lost at the scene and not processed as evidence. Uh, but getting into a shouting match, I wouldn't recommend that. No, don't do that. And consider this situation. What you described there, Matt, is that you're at the scene, and now we have what might be the bad guy in custody, and you're there as a witness. That is a huge help to law enforcement because we are going to take statements from everybody. The bad guy can say whatever he wants in his statement. You can say the truth, I would hope, whatever you want in your statement, and then we are going to look at the evidence and try to sort this all out. We are not making a decision of guilt or innocence on the scene. We're not doing that. We're capturing all the information, putting it into a big report, and sending it to Prosecutor Tom. You know, I'll, I'll just add as well that um, usually by the time that a bad guy, not always, but usually by the time a bad guy is using a weapon to rob someone or break into someone's home, when the officers get around to running their record, it's not their first time through the system. And I'm not saying that that's going to perhaps change a situation and, and erase any mistakes that you made, but it may speak to the truth of what's really going on here. Big picture. All right. When is it legally defensible to display a weapon in order to defuse a perceived threat? Depends upon the threat. If it's a deadly threat, you are, you, you, you are going to be as legally defensible at that point. All right? mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you won't get charged or prosecuted, but at least if, again, if it was indeed a lawful deadly threat, then yeah, you can do that. Otherwise, I hate to be the broken record, check your local listings, uscca.com forward slash laws, L-A-W-S at the end of that when we talk about brandishing laws. And if you missed out, although I guess since this is on the member dashboard for folks, mm -hmm. you've probably seen everything up until that point. You wouldn't just be dropping in. But if you did drop in, Kevin, I think you mentioned something about the brandishing laws. Yes, uh, we are looking into the brandishing laws and we'll be adding those to the, the individual state laws pages so that we can very clearly and quickly tell everybody in their state what is or isn't brandishing. So we're going through that right now. I was actually talking to some of our uh, member care advisors who were researching those laws last night and pulling everything together. And very soon we'll have the brandishing laws put together. So um, what I will tell you is, uh, just like Tom said, it depends on what's going on, reasonable force. You know, do not be pointing your gun at somebody and saying, get off my lawn. You know, you're, you can't do that. So um, use your gun in response to an imminent deadly threat. That's, that's going to be my suggestion. And keep in mind, if you point your firearm at someone who isn't posing a deadly threat to yourself or in a defensive other situation to someone else, uh, you could be looking at recklessly endangering safety. Uh, let me, I realize those words don't really mean anything to you, so let me use different words. You could be looking at 25 years prison. That's what you could be looking at, all right? Um, and I'm not defending that that's the way it ought to be. I'm saying that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. So. All right, next up, this is, this is a good one for you. Brian, Brian asks, you check your firearm at the airport, but your plane gets diverted to a state that is not reciprocal and you cannot carry. The flight is delayed for a day. How do you proceed with retrieving your firearm in this situation? Will there be an issue with checking in the firearm at the airport with those restrictions? Well, I think Brian's asking a great question, but I think there's a follow-up question that I'm betting you and I are both thinking about. So let's take Brian, Brian's questions first. Brian's question seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, but it seems to me to presuppose that you can legally possess the firearm. Right. Coming attractions. You can, yeah. you can legally possess the firearm in that state 
Uh, you can therefore probably find a way to legally transport the firearm to and from your hotel, from the airport, and so forth. Um, the question is, how do you actually carry it? Well, if you can't carry, you can't carry. That's what the law is. Mm -hmm. um, but the possession, then you're okay. Yeah. So, but if you land in Newark or you land at LaGuardia and you can't even possess a firearm and there is one in your bag, then you need to not take possession of that firearm. You need to go talk to the baggage folks down there and explain to them what is going on. And again, this is something where the laws can really get people crossed up and in trouble. That's why a lot of folks, you know, if your plane gets diverted, say you're flying to Atlanta and it gets diverted to LaGuardia or something like that, Ouch. you might be in a serious situation. But I would say don't take possession of that firearm. And right now, the, air, the airline has it. The airline is responsible for that gun. Make sure it stays locked in your bag, locked in the airport, you know, where they have the, where the bags are stored. If you take possession of that firearm, you're knowingly taking possession of something that's illegal to possess. Uh, that means you're committing a crime. And we've seen folks get into serious, serious trouble with that. No one here is defending that that's, what the, way, that's the way it ought to be. Again, we're just saying that's the way that it is. So look, even if it, it's a small price to pay to be wearing your same clothes two days in a row, to not be in prison for years and years and years. So make that trade. We're not saying it's fair or just big picture. Mm -hmm but make that trade. And I would really like to look into this a little bit more for either Concealed Carry Magazine or the blog and figure out if we can give people good solid advice on what happens if you suddenly find yourself in a place that is very, very anti-gun and, and your, your gun is there in the bag and, and what we should do because that's a very difficult situation. Does the attacker have to have a weapon to use deadly force if you feel like your life or your family member is in danger? Well. I once had a bouncer outside a bar tell me that he would rip off my arm and beat me to death with it. He didn't have any other weapons, and I believed he could have done it. To be fair, so, your arm is probably a deadly weapon, right? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, then he would have. A then he'd have weapon. a deadly weapon yeah, at that point, if he'd right? Rip off my okay. arm. Right. Um, you know, all kidding aside, you know, these are deadly weapons. Uh, hundreds of people are beaten or stomped to death each year. So. We'll discuss things like disparity of force and, and other elements that, that go into when and at, at what point you can use deadly force. But if you can reasonably articulate that you feared death or great bodily harm, then you can use deadly force to stop that threat. Now, that, the reason that is so vague is so that guys like Tom can make lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that might be the effect, in theory at least, yeah. but that's not, I mean, look, probably more people have been killed by, by fists than, well, I don't know. And certainly more certainly people Certainly a lot by, have been people killed more by More people fists. are killed by fists than are killed by rifles each year right. on average. So, right, yeah. right. Particularly if we start factoring knives and, and pointed weapons, that's, that becomes especially true. Yeah. But um, look, I mean, at the end of the day, as an attorney, as a defense attorney and a former state prosecutor, would I prefer to have a weapon in the bad guy's hands to really just clear this up? Of course. Do we get to create the fact patterns, as we call them in law? Do, are, do we the ones that get to create the fact patterns? No, we have to deal with them as they come to us. That's gonna be a very gray decision area. I mean, it may not be. Uh, maybe you're wheelchair bound and maybe the attacker's six foot five and could star in a Rocky movie. I don't know, as, as the bad guy I'll add. I, I don't know, maybe. Um, that becomes a little bit more clear, but oftentimes these things are not clear. And unfortunately, sometimes prosecutors have, have the reaction 
of, you know what, we're just going to let a jury decide it. We're going to charge him. We're going to let the jury decide it. Not all prosecutors, let me be clear, but there are many out there where that's their reaction, particularly if somebody's been killed. If you had to use your firearm or if you did use your firearm in self-defense uh, and somebody's dead, the prosecutors are thinking about what in their system we classified as the victim's family, and oftentimes they're not saying, yeah, my... my uh, you know, you know, Johnny. He was uh, he he was a bad seed. No, of course not, right? Johnny was a great guy. You know, on the up and up. You know, sure he's had some some rough and tumbles with the law, but that's all ancient history three weeks ago. And you know, things are way better right now. So it can be very gray. And unfortunately, again, it's it's not what ought. It's what is. Yes, absolutely. So. Next question up, uh, no one was brave enough to put their name on this question, so I will just uh, roll it out here. Is it safe to carry a bullet in the chamber? No, it's safe to carry a cartridge in the chamber. The bullet is just the part that flies out and pokes holes in bad guys. A cartridge carried in the chamber, yes, that is safe. That's how I carry my firearm on duty in condition one, fully loaded magazine, round in the chamber, all safeties engaged. That is safe to do. I'm gonna be that jerk. I'm just gonna add one wrinkle to it. Um, if you have a good holster and therefore you've got you've, you've got trigger protection and so forth, then yes. Yes. If you've got a crappy holster because you didn't invest in it, or God forbid you're not using a holster, you tucked it in your sweatpants. You did the sweatpants. Yeah, yeah, you know something like that. I mean, there's so many problems at that point. I don't really know where to begin. Um, mm. But sure, it may not be safe then. That's for sure. Yeah. So you know, questions answer or Kevin's answer is, is presupposing that you've got a great holster and you you know what you're doing. You're competently carrying. Then and, yes. Yeah, and it takes an attorney to point out where I came up short. <laughs> I, I apologize. I'll send if, you the bill if you have a good holster. I'll send you so, the bill. Don't worry about it. Thank you very yeah. much. Do you want to take the last question from Jim? Yes, Jim asks currently. I do not have a permit uh, and am planning to travel from Ohio to Florida. Can I legally transport locked, unloaded, embedded truck separate from cab? Oh, Jim's been watching the videos. Yes, without sir. a permit. Well, I guess my first question is, are the firearm that is the firearm or firearms that we're talking about, Jim, are these legal to own both in Ohio as well as in Florida, the destination place? If the answer is yes, then assuming that they're locked, unloaded, stored safely, you know, out of area, blah, 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 then the answer is yes, but keep in mind we cannot dwell in places where it may be illegal. So you're cutting through Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, maybe South Carolina or North Carolina, depending upon your route, Georgia, so forth. None of those states, at least to me, strike me as states that are going to be more restrictive on firearms. But look, at the end of the day, I'm not the one that's going to go to prison for it, which is the reason why I'd be checking out uscca.com forward slash laws as well as checking out the DOJ web pages to get as much information as possible to make sure that those states are legal. Because if it is, great. You can dwell there. You can grab lunch, fill up your car, all that kind of stuff. If it's not, cruise control, speed limit, empty out at the border, just cruising through. Wow. I was really impressed with your knowledge of geography there. As we wrap <laughs> this up, you got all of those states. I've driven is. through that area a few yeah, times, actually. Outstanding. So, yeah, there you well, go. As I like to say... As my therapist says, our time is up. It's so, a brave therapist. Yes, we're, we're, we're done with this most recent episode of Ask an Attorney. I was not the attorney. Tom is the attorney. And I want to ask, Tom, what can our USCCA members sure. do to help you out? Right. So, guys, um, hopefully you got something out of this. Hopefully you enjoy listening to this. Something that really, really, really allows me to be here to help do this and to break away from my fantastic team back at the office. 
is to this part right here, asking for you guys to leave a review. So if you could, if there's a button that you see that says click to leave Tom a review, please click it. Otherwise, you're Googling for Grieve Law. And just check us out, leave reviews wherever you can that you, where you find us. It's usually gonna ask you to grade us on a five-star scale. So five's great, it's the internet, four is failing. So we ask that if you felt like you had, uh, you had a great review or if you had a great, if you got good information, leave a five-star. If you click read, uh, pardon, if you click leave a review, it's gonna go to uh, a subsidiary of our firm, which is actually specifically focused on family law. It's divergent family law. You are not missing out. That is us. Again, we really, 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 truly appreciate the five-star review. Even if you've left reviews in the past, you've heard me say this before, we moved the button to a new location. So please take a moment, and I will just close on the fact that I do personally read and review and respond to each one of these. Sometimes it takes me a few weeks, but I always get to all of them. I, I really, It really is me, all right? Um, so again, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's totally free. It takes you a couple seconds. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, that's it. Tune in again next month when we will ask an attorney, that attorney, more questions.